0: All right. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Darren with Craftsman Creative here again with another amazing Craftsman Creative Workshop today. I'm so excited because I'm chatting with Alexandra Allen. We're newfound friends. We met each other, I think, in a group that's around courses, doing online courses. But you've got this crazy deep experience with courses. And I immediately reached out and was like, we need to chat. And we chatted just a few days ago and I was like, now we need to get on a podcast because everybody needs to hear from you. So I'm really excited. This conversation is, we're going to go deep on marketing courses and I'm excited to chat with you because you have this experience. You were a mentor with Rite of Passage, which is one of like the biggest online courses, cohort-based courses. You've also worked with Maven, which has kind of come on the scene in a crazy fashion over the last year and a half or so. And so really excited to chat. Um, hi, welcome. Thanks for being here. <laughs>
1: yeah, thanks so much, Darren. Uh, excited to be here. So thanks for having me on. I'm excited mm-hmm. to, to dive into marketing with you as well. If someone had told me even like a year ago that I'd be talking about course marketing for this sort of stuff, I would have laughed because it's a topic that I knew nothing, nothing, nothing much about even a few months back. So uh, excited to dive into this topic and break it down for anyone who needs more info on it.
0: Amazing. All right. So most people know my background if they're watching or listening to this because they know that I've been producing courses randomly over the last two years. I started this thing called Craftsman Creative, which originally was an online course platform for creatives. And now it's like my own brand. I wrote a book and I have all this other content around, uh, you know, kind of taking on the Craftsman mindset, treating your, your business like a business and acting like a business owner rather than just an artist or creator. So Let's hear first about like, what's your background? How did you get into courses? What was kind of your path to, you know, us getting on a call today and talking on the podcast?
1: Yeah, a great question. So uh, like most people I think were working in this space, it was pretty unconventional and I definitely wouldn't have, I don't think I would have been able to plan this had I wanted to. Uh, so just to kind of dial back, uh, when the pandemic happened at uh, the start of 2020, I was actually working at Ubisoft HQ in Paris And so that was when I first kind of got into this whole remote work. Uh, Well, I was working kind of remotely almost since 2018, because as part of the international HQ, um, for those who don't know, Ubisoft is a company with over 18,000 employees um, in countries around the world. So a lot of my work uh, on community and strategy for global HR initiatives was talking to people in different locations like we're doing now, uh, talking about training initiatives and KPIs and Different community building initiatives they were doing locally, so that's when I first kind of got into this whole way of, you know, not just um, not just working with people online, but trying to think of how do you how do you scale training initiatives to get everyone aligned across different different locations, different cultures. Um, so that's when I kind of got into it, and then in early 2020, I decided I really wanted to go deep on that and figure um, instead of just coordinating and doing logistics and kind of just making things up on the fly in terms of suggestions uh, for what would make things impactful and you know, doing my own research. I really wanted to get some formal training just to give me a bit of a confidence booster and to be able to add more value. So I actually enrolled in my first CBC program um, at the Harvard Extension School. So I was doing it remotely from France, um, the extension being based in the US. And so I started th- studying learning design and tech and I was blown away at how amazing the program was because I was learning about instructional design with people who were you know, in Dubai, uh, in the US, um, in South America. Um, so it was really cool that we were all learning about education together. And then what was cool is everyone was bringing these different perspectives, again, from different cultures, different life experiences. And so that really opened my eyes to the power of you know, the CBC model. And then um, during the pandemic, I ended up relocating to Montreal where I am now, um, where I'm originally from, to be closer to family. And um, I ended up joining a startup incubator. and. Ironically, they run uh, cohort-based programs for entrepreneurs and students who wanna become entrepreneurs. And um, they had said when the pandemic hit, they had no idea what they were gonna do because it was impossible to do what they did online. And then lo and behold, uh, their office was shut. So the choice was shut down or go online. And as you would have it, uh, they found a way. And I was one of the people who helped create that structure that they could teach it online. Um, and it was cool because then again, they got to open up their programs to startups that were even based in the US, which previously they couldn't have done because you had to be physically in Montreal. So that's where I kind of, uh, I guess, got my sea legs in terms of building programming with entrepreneurs, because I worked with startup coaches, um, you know, veteran entrepreneurs who were figuring out how do we package this into a, a program that new entrepreneurs can learn the basics. Um, so that that was kind of my foray into it. Um, and fast forward a couple of years, I decided I wanted to have more, uh, more freedom to work remotely uh, because the startup incubator is actually going more into the office now. Um, and I just wanted to kind of venture out on my own and explore different opportunities. So one of the first opportunities I had as a, you know, a solopreneur, if you will, uh, was working as a, an instructor coach on Maven's accelerator course. And then that really kind of was a nice transition of, I'd been working with, primarily with organizations, because again, I was even though I was working with entrepreneurs, I was in an organizational model. So when I worked, started working with Maven, um, I discovered that there were a lot of entrepreneurs and creators who were kind of working either on their own or with a very small team who were essentially trying to build a new revenue stream or an entirely new business based around a course they wanted to teach. And that's where I saw there was a huge opportunity you know, to continue helping people do that. So uh, yeah, long story short, we're um, not really. Um, I, uh, I've kind of just been working with a, a bunch of different instructors um, that I've met, through Maven, um, through Rite of Passage as well. Being such a strong community, there's a lot of people go into Rite of Passage and then want to launch courses of their own. So again, uh, that's been a, a huge catalyst in helping me connect with different people uh, and just kind of word of mouth referrals. But that's basically how it started and uh, where I'm at now.
0: Uh, amazing, okay, so I'm so excited to dive in. And this is kind of what you and I talked about the other day on the call. So I just, this is just an opportunity for the audience to hear how awesome your your information and feedback is. Um, so let's get right into it because I'll share my experience which I think is a very um, shared experience with a lot of people who create online courses. The first thing I did was I made two of my own courses right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, i was in the process of doing that and then it really sped up cuz i had all this free time all of a sudden and i have this background as a film and tv producer i've been, i owned my own video production company for 15 year or 12 years i guess i've had a 15 16 year career in this industry so the easy part was making the course coming up with the content structuring it filming it editing it building a website hosting it charging payments all that stuff super easy like that took a week honestly, to like do a <laughs> high level masterclass style course that looked good, sounded good, you know, helped achieve outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And I sold like 10 seats to the course. It wasn't a live course it was a pre-recorded. That's still good and for a so, first
1: cohort, you know, un- unless you have a big following, bad. that's good. So.
0: <laughs> it's true. That's true. It's not bad. Um, I'm always very uh, hard on myself <laughs> when it comes to like numbers. But um, the thing I've, confronted over and over again, now having done this for two years, produced over 15 courses, uh, most of them now with other partners. So filming courses for people, putting them on the site, is they'll have this big uptick with like their launch week, they'll sell 30, 40, 50, 80 people on their course in a week, which is amazing. And then three weeks later, they're down to like one a week, because there's no marketing mechanism to keep the ongoing sales. And so, um, there's my experience. And my guess is that a lot of people, uh, the the easy thing to teach and to learn online is how to make a course, whether it's click click record on Loom and record your screen for an hour and talk over it or whatever. Like Daniel Vasalo has done hundreds of thousands of dollars with a course that was a screenshot presentation, right? The production value was as low as it could be, except that we could see him and hear him clearly. Right. <laughs> but it delivers the outcome and it helped people, et cetera, et cetera. I'm getting long winded, so I'm going to stop that. But talk to me a little bit about how, um, like, what should creators do when they get confronted or hit this wall of, oh, I made this course and now I don't know what to do and nobody's buying
1: it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, first of all, I think that's a, a great point. And like you said, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk about the need to market your first cohort. And I think what's hard about that is like you said, people just then have this expectation that it's just going to automatically snowball. And I think rite of passage is a course that people see and they think like, oh yeah, it's going to be word of mouth and it'll just keep going. But I actually posted a thread on this yesterday um, saying how I consider rite of passage the best example of why you should operate your, your course like a startup founder would, uh, their startup, because uh, it all comes down, I think, to having that one-to-one contact with people because yes, you can acquire a huge audience and stuff, but if you don't maintain that one-to-one contact, you're not getting the qualitative feedback on your course um, or capturing like specific uh, language that you can then repurpose for marketing. So just to give an example, and this is something David Perrell talks about and does exceptionally well with his team is, um, you know, not not only do they do surveys, of course, like they were at this point, they're running cohorts of two, 300 people. So of course they do surveys, that's a given, but they also still make time to do one-to-ones, you know, like I've met with David one-on-one, I've met with Will one-on-one um, and they do this with so many people who are in the course um, and they're genuinely curious of like, you know, what can we do better? Like, tell us tell us what you love, like, but like tell us what we can improve on. And by giving people that permission to speak honestly about what could be done better, you're then tapping into how you can iterate on your course and position it to make it the best option for people. And I think that's something that, not a lot of people think of because, of course, you want the referrals of the good stuff. Um, but those come naturally the more you you know, plug those holes of the things that people identify as, as gaps. And another tip um, I would say in terms of just kind of creating that snowball, because it doesn't happen on its own, is um, I was speaking to a friend of mine, who um, uh, Michael Sklar, who runs a course called the Personal Monopoly Accelerator. He's actually running uh, another cohort soon. So I just want to plug that if anyone's interested. It's kind of a spin-off of rite of passage that kind of helps people go deeper to find their kind of specific, um, like niche in writing. And what he was saying to me is he's like, oh, of course I, I, I didn't think much about the marketing for the second one. And I'm like, of course, because once like the shot is fired and you start your cohort, you're so focused on what you're doing that you're not thinking about the next one. Uh, but you really do need to be thinking about it so i tell people even if it's having a swipe file where you just kind of grab things as simple as whether it's like in your community platform someone writes like a personal win they had or something that they loved or you know something they're enjoying take a screenshot like you're usually busy so sometimes half the time i just do a screenshot put it in my swipe file and then at the end of the course i kind of come back dig them up and reformat them Uh, but those Mm -hmm. become uh, the social proof you need to really get the credibility Um, as an instructor and to promote that your course gets people um, effects and my biggest tip to people is when you get to the end of your course always always factor in time to give to get people to do a post course uh, survey because what most people do and i used to do this as well is you you do the last session and then you tell people they're going to get a survey and you're like fingers crossed they're going to do it and most people don't so what you should do is build it into the last session because this guarantees that people are actually going to do it. But you have to make it a win-win. So instead of just making it about you and saying like, "I want you to give feedback on my course so that I can promote it to other people," you make it a reflection, a reflection exercise for them. So it's it's built in into the learning design of your course, where you get people to do a reflection on how far they've come. You know what were the you know what were the goals they set for themselves? What are the outcomes they've achieved? And you know what, what? are they proud of that they've done? And so it becomes a win for them in the in the sense of you're promoting learning. Because my one of my favorite favorite quotes that I use in my newsletter every week is from um, John Dewey, where he says, "We do not learn from experience; we learn from reflecting on experience." And that is so so true. Uh, you really need to reflect on the experience you've had in order to connect the dots of you know what's changed and what are you planning to continue uh, like sustaining going forward. So what I tell people is use those questions. Don't just make it like, you know, a net promoter score of like, how likely are you to refer this? Those questions are fantastic, but you also have to have them like crafted more towards the student of, you know, what's the biggest achievement you've had in the course? You know, what's one thing mm-hmm. you're doing differently since you started? And just as like a precursor to that, you really should get people to do um, an initial survey or exercise again, that's for them. To really set goals and outline like what specifically they're looking to achieve it could be an onboarding survey it could be an exercise in your first session but again one of the most powerful uh marketing marketing tactics and i actually saw uh west ko posted something about this a couple of weeks ago and she posts all kinds of genius stuff so definitely follow her if you don't um but she was talking about marketing in general is showing people before and after results and i think in courses that's especially important um and there was a tweet i shared a while ago, I have to dig it up of an article I wrote before Rite of Passage versus the rewritten article I wrote in Rite of Passage. And I put them in a screenshot side-by-side comparison and people were like, this is insane to see the difference. And for me, it was insane to see the difference because I'm like, wow, this shows that I'm getting, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting the outcomes I'm looking for and that I've really progressed. So I think if you can figure out a way to get your students to do like a before and after type thing from start to finish, Again, then ask them for their permission. If you can share a few, you can put them on your landing page. That speaks a lot more to people than just having people say, like, it was great, it was wonderful. Because you also want your testimonial to be specific. That's another thing. Like, some people automatically go, let's say it's uh, Darren's the best instructor, he's awesome, Uh, I learned so much. But, like, that's very vague. Like, what specifically, like, what specific outcome did you help them achieve, and how did you help them do that is what people wanna know. Um, to be convinced, but yeah, if you can figure out how to do a before and after, that's phenomenal. And I know um, uh, Charlotte, the founder of, there's an app called My Snapshot, which Rite of Passage actually uses, and it's in part of the onboarding survey where people evaluate themselves on this um, uh, this grid of like like the different um, skills you're looking to build on. Of they rate where they're at, and then at the end they rate where they are, and you see the difference. And again, that helps people. Well. helps people recognize how far they've come so if you can do that for your students those all become marketing assets that you can promote your course because there's nothing better than social proof when it comes to all your marketing stuff or word of mouth
0: yeah holy cow that's amazing so i'm curious does it work differently in your mind for a pre-recorded course versus a cohort based course because i think like i was kind of saying earlier the the hard part is not the making of the course. It's the marketing of it. And so I love that you're incorporating how to capture before and after, how to capture testimonial specific outcomes. Like those are the things that are going to help people when they land on your landing page or learn about your course go, oh, I'm identifying with that student because that's an outcome I care about. Mm -hmm. And, or they identify with the before of like, oh, that's like where I'm at right now. And when they can see that transformation, like, again, I, I, not again, but I think the transformation aspect is such an important part of it. Um, But is there any difference between whether you're doing a one-time evergreen pre-recorded course that really, you're not going to have a second cohort, you're not necessarily worried about Um, the snowball effect or because that's not a a factor in a pre-recorded. Is there any difference in the way that you see that?
1: Um, So just to clarify, you're talking about you, like, would it be the same tactics for a course that doesn't have a start date? It's kind of like people just jump in asynchronously whenever. Yeah. So I think you can use a lot of the same tactics. I mean, minus the ones where it, it depends if the asynchronous course has like a community forum. I'm not sure. I'm very curious how that would work if it's not cohort based, um, even if it's an async model, just because if there's no, inter- I, I can't imagine there'd be a forum or something unless people are doing the course at the same time. So in that case, mm-hmm. you won't necessarily be able to capture those things. But I still think ideally, if you could have something like a before and after survey and like these reflection exercises, you could still extract that and then use them as testimonials. and whether you decide, I'm not sure exactly, like, again, I haven't really worked on asynchronous courses. So this is just my, me me thinking on the spot here. Um, But what I would think is that um, you would still have some sort of marketing sprint, I would imagine where you just kind of, you don't just market it once and then expect it to take off. Mm -hmm. You still need to do marketing like at regular intervals, even if it's not cohort based. So to me, extracting as much as you can from your students in terms of surveys, uh, testimonials would still be a key factor, I think. And, nice. and another part too is, I know we talked about this, was uh, the idea of doing free workshops. Um, so I think that's something that whether or not you have an async course or a cohort-based course, giving people a, a taste test is, uh, is really nice for them to just understand what they're getting.
0: Yeah, let me, um, let me expand on that thought for a second because this is something we just did during a launch of one of these courses I, I helped launch uh, or helped produce and launched last month. So it's with this hand lettering artist or an engraving. She's an engraver, a calligrapher hand letter based in Toronto, Canada. Her name's Talisa and she's amazing. Um, But what's so interesting is we have, I have this very clear side by side because I, at the same time, launched a course for another hand lettering artist named Doris and they're friends. And so it worked well. I went and filmed the courses in the same week, back to back. They launched them at the same time. They were cross promoting. Everybody was, it was this really great thing. But the results were staggering, like an order of magnitude more sales and enrollments for Talisa, who has one, you know, not one-tenth, but about one-third the audience of um, Doris. And what was so interesting to me was the strategy of marketing it is what determined those outcomes. And so Talisa had spent the last year building up an email list and had 250, 300 people on that list that she knew were interested in learning about calligraphy, lettering, engraving from her. So when she was announcing that I'm going to be producing a course, people were getting on her email list, and she lined up an extra 150 over like the two months of you know pre-launch of just like announcing and talking about et cetera, et cetera. But diving into the workshop idea, Talisa did a live workshop. I'm planning on one with Doris. We just haven't done it yet. But Talisa's workshop, this is. Crazy to me. Again, an audience of about 9,000 people on Instagram, that's her biggest channel, and then an email list of about 200, 250 people. She signed up 285 people for this workshop, about 90 showed up live, and at the end of that call, we said, hey, for the people that are here on the call... For the next six hours, we'll give you the upgrade to like the free mentor or we will include the mentor session, which is an extra two hundred dollars on top of the price of the course. This is a pre-recorded course. Yeah. So it was like a four hundred ninety-five dollar price point for the course, six ninety-five for the mentor session, they could get the six ninety five price for four ninety-five. She signed up like fifteen people out of eighty-five from the workshop three days before the course even launched officially and did over $15,000 in sales in a week because she had such a great starting point. And so to me, that shows the power of A, an email list, and B, doing these free workshops because all people had to deal was say, yeah, here's my email, tell me when the workshop is happening and I'll be there. And it worked really, really well. Even the people that couldn't attend live because they were in some different time zone or couldn't make it, they still got an email that said, hey, here's a replay, go check it out. And if you watch the replay and you still want the deal, message me and I'll help you out. And there were like three people that two days later were like, oh shoot, is it too late to get the deal? I'm like, no, I got you, don't worry, you know? Because they were her diehard fans and they wanted to show up and learn from her. So I think if you, I think it's something where it's not something you're gonna turn on in a week. You're not gonna go from being a personality online or having 1,000 followers or 2,000, like I almost have, and saying, hey, now I'm an educator and come to my free workshop and buy my $500 course. Yeah. That's not something that happens for an audience to take that big of a swing or to expand their vision of you in a week. She did it over a year, consciously, methodically building her email list, and then for months talking about, I have a course coming, I have a course coming, here's the outcome, here's what's going to happen, to where she had that outcome. Um, so thoughts on that, like, let's talk a little bit more about these free workshops. How do you utilize them to get, to improve the marketing for the actual product, which is the course?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I like what you said about the, there has to be stepping stones in terms of like, just to give it an analogy, I think like social media is just kind of socializing at large, right? And then getting people on your email list is like the equivalent of dating or having like that more intimate relationship versus getting people to buy stuff. That's like a marriage, uh, you know, commitment where people are really invested. So just, just to give you an idea of like the different buckets of the stepping stone. So I think I know, um, so David Perel, again, uh, I, I refer so much to his, his stuff cause that's how I've learned a lot about specifically about marketing and he, he's even a marketing guest speaker for Maven's accelerator course. So, you know, I've been absorbing all of his knowledge, uh, but he has this analogy where he talks about the need to get people to cross the public to private bridge. And it's this idea that uh, he gives a case study of this startup that was in San Francisco that was supposed to be like the next big thing. They were unstoppable or so everyone thought. Um, And they Mm -hmm. built this, amassed this huge audience um, on Twitter. I think it was called Meerkat. Remember, you knew of it, right? Yeah. Is that the name? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Anyway, he he was basically just saying that, um, you know, they were destined to be massive, um, but then Twitter changed something and they basically lost they're following overnight because they didn't have a way to to connect with their clients because all of a sudden Mm -hmm. their Twitter following was gone. And it's something that kind of really wakes you up to the fact of, Oh, wow, you can spend years of your life amassing these huge audiences on social platforms, um, whether it's YouTube, LinkedIn, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, you you know, your account gets shut down for whatever reason, you've done something uh, to piss off the platform or you've like, you know, done something unintentionally even, um, and all of a sudden, uh, your your page is down, and then it's like, well, how do you how do you get in touch with all these people that you've worked so hard to bring into your kind of orbit? Um, and the the answer there is, at this point in time, it's email because that's the best way to get hold of people. I mean, you're not going to call them on the phone, so you get people's email. And um, this this was something that I started doing when I took Passage passages. They call it like sending a digital postcard. So the idea of start a newsletter, Um, you know, it can be a weekly newsletter. And the idea is keep it short enough that it could be like a one page in your phone. So again, you're not sending people a novel. It's just, you know, build this habit of once a week, sharing a tip relevant to your field. And that way you stay top of mind with the people that you're trying to kind of bring in closer um, to potentially collaborate with, or, you know, serve as clients. And what's really interesting about that is it serves two purposes. Like I know with mine, I think I'm on week 34. I just sent my 34th, which is exciting. Um, it's, it's not, it doesn't just become about marketing. It really just becomes to me about relationship building. And I I think what's really rewarding about that is there's so many people who reply back with things that resonate with them. Um, you know, I have people on there who are even like family friends or like, you know, my, my uncle's like friend, who's a, you know, been a multi-time entrepreneur who wrote back, like, you know, I'm so excited for your journey and, leads to this whole discussion of him giving me advice. And I'm like, if I didn't have my newsletter, we wouldn't be having this exchange because this opens the floor to kind of dive into this. So to me, it's, I kind of look back again, like as someone who used to be very intimidated by marketing and is still learning the ropes, like Mm -hmm. what is marketing in the sense of it's really about building trust, um, and respect, like building that mutual trust and respect with people. And to me, it's just how do you kind of lay that foundation to allow that to kind of grow? Like people say, the the analogy, uh, the deeper the roots, the stronger the branches. And that's kind of how I think of how you need to go about the marketing is make it a two-way street of, you know, you're sharing things um, to help educate people, to help entertain them as well. Um, And then they're reciprocating, too, with what what resonates, uh, what they want more of. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm going off on like a tangent, but all that to say, oh, <laughs> um, really about bringing bringing people into an email. It, it doesn't have to be this like yucky like, oh, like I have to spam you with emails because that's something that I hate. Um, but it's really about kind of just bringing someone in closer to get to know you more, to understand like what makes you unique. because I think for me, a big part of um, a big part of what makes a good course and what makes a good instructor is really playing to your unique strengths. So I call it um, like accentuating what's unique about you. Um, So that's kind of like my my go-to term for it. Um, And even to just kind of give an example, like um, one of my friends, Louis, who I met through at a passage, he was a mentor, and now he's launched a course on Maven called the Newsletter Launchpad. He's kind of like coined this whole identity of he calls himself like the awkward um, engineer turned entrepreneur um, in the sense of, you know, he's like, I used to be really scared of public speaking, and I still get like nervous of sharing all this stuff, but he he's out there doing it and kind of just like managed to turn this thing into like a huge asset. And it's by accentuating what's unique about him. People feel like they get to know him more and they're like, I trust him more. Uh, he has more credibility because he's so authentic. So it's really just kind of accentuating those things about yourself. And I think your email list is a great way to have more candid conversations with people and share more, share more intimate details about you, about your work, um, and really build that relationship. So it's kind of like your you're bringing people in, but you're building a relationship as opposed to just trying to get them like into a, into like a generic marketing funnel. Does that answer your question? Sorry, I feel like I went on such a tangent.
0: (laughs) I love where we went, where we ended up, because I think um, what I took from that, and I have an example that I'll share as well, is that relationship building is marketing in a sense, but Mm -hmm. in my mind, the outcomes of like getting more people on your email list, selling more courses, whatever it might be. My experience having a small audience is that relationship building is actually better and more effective than quote unquote marketing. And marketing is not the same thing as advertising. They're very similar, but they're not the same. And marketing is not sales. So let's get that out of the way. (laughs) But here's a personal example just from the last two months. So I wrote a book called Craftsman Creative and I had to figure out how do I market a book? I've never done that before. Well, the most effective thing I did was not the five different ad spots that I placed in newsletters, and I did them all the way from like Josh Specter and Justin Moore and Growth Currency and even like Recommendo and some of the some big newsletters, eighteen, twenty, fifty thousand readers, um, did not drive a lot of sales. Maybe a handful, maybe three or five total, from like hundreds of dollars of <laughs> advertising spend. Um, The thing that drove the most sales and especially newsletter subscribers was a friend of mine, Josh Spector, who pulled pulled a post, like a chapter from my book that I had published as a blog post months ago and put it in his newsletter, in one of his daily newsletters. And in two days, 1,500 people came and visited my website and over 60 people signed up for the email list in two days. I think it's now up to 85. I was just tracking it all this morning. I was like, holy cow, last month was the biggest month ever because Josh Spector did this thing for me. And because he's a friend, and I told him, hey, I was hoping to advertise in your newsletter, but you're booked out till July and I don't have time. And he didn't even, like, we didn't even talk about it. I didn't ask. I didn't, I just was like, "Ah, oh, bummer. I really wanted to get in your newsletter. He did it as a friend, as a kindness shared a link to my stuff and drove his newsletter people there. Um, the times that people have retweeted me on Twitter, the times people have included my stuff in their newsletters or in their podcast or whatever it may be is so much more effective by like two or three orders of magnitude more effective than any advertising that I can do with my small budget and my marketing efforts with a small audience, because you know i'll put a tweet out and 150 people see it i'll put a newsletter out and you know six seven hundred people see it which is great and i have that uh, ability but these are people who already know me or who already have my book or who already listened to them they're obviously on my newsletter they already get it um marketing i see as a way to reach new people even though like when you're launching a product you want to announce it to your existing audience as well um but I mean, just, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, the relationship building aspect of it all, because we, it's, it's, um, it's not the reason you should do it to like no, use those people to get, to give you something. Right. But the benefit of being a human and being nice and kind <laughs> and reaching out to people and meeting people and building relationships with people online is that these serendipitous, really cool, like moments of grace is what I call them. It's just these incredible opportunities pop up that you didn't even know were gonna happen um, because you did that work. And so it's thinking of it as more of a long-term game than a short-term transaction of, hey, I need you to do this thing for me right now. Big time. in regard of what I'm gonna do for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's something like, I'm still pretty new to Twitter. Um, I've only like been active for like maybe a year or so, but like even then only recently got active. Um, and I notice, like, even like I get a lot of DMs. I know a lot of people do, of like, hey, like from someone I've never met or like who doesn't follow me or I don't follow them, being like, I have this thing with love. If you could like promote it or something, and I'm like, I have no idea what this is or or whatever. So it just kind of feels very random. Versus um, what you're saying about relationship building is, ironically, like you said, by not trying to be like pushing stuff on people and just by focusing on relationship building and you know spending time with people who have genuine shared interests with you you actually end up supercharging your, your marketing to your point, exactly where someone in your network then like shares it. And that supercharges, you know, your reach as opposed to just doing it yourself. And again, like I've had this happen with friends I've met in rite of passage. Some of them have massive followings, um, on, on various social media platforms. And you know, they've, they've shared something that, or, you know, they always like like my posts and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, like, I would never ask them to do that because you know, whether they have a different audience, et cetera, but just the fact that like friends want you to succeed. And this is something that, again, like this is very meta because I'm talking about being a student as well in a CBC, but with rite of passage, um, it's such a challenging and intense course that um, I think people really connect through it. And my friend, John Nicholas, um, who's been in the course, and he's been a steward for it was, you know, metaphorically describes it as like we, we bled on the page together because like all of us were putting ourselves out there with our writing, but it was twofold. And then it was also just, Also sharing very personal experiences, uh, personal goals. And what happens when you do that is you become invested in each other's success in, you know, in whatever you're doing. And it's funny, like a lot of us went going into it. Like I hadn't even launched my business yet. Other people too were like, I just quit my job and trying to figure it out. But it's like we become invested in each other as people. And so then once we do start marketing the things we're working on, it's like I, I can't like it or share it fast enough for different people in that group because... I'm so invested in helping them like achieve their dreams i believe in them i think they're fantastic and i'm willing to like give a testimonial and that to me is worth so much more than just uh you know trying trying to just go the route of like just like mass 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 obviously the, the bigger the following you can acquire that's great but just to say like don't do that at the expense of building relationships at the same time because at the end of the day that community foundation is what i think sustains you long term and i remember um someone i followed who has a big following like almost like 20,000 followers was saying, um, you know, sharing really vulnerably, which is why I love following her um, about being like a solopreneur. She was saying how she amassed this huge following and it became like such a part of her identity that she then decided to pivot and do something different. And when she announced it, there was like barely any engagement or reaction. And she said she had to like sign off for the weekend and kind of do like a detox because she's like, it just put her through such a spiral to think like, okay, I've been tying my identity to this huge following. And now like no one cares about this new thing what am i going to do and it's like you don't want that to happen because you have to know that you're so much you and your talents and everything about you is worth so much more than any number no matter how high it is so i think that's where you need to kind of have that people talk about like your kind of public persona in a way too of maintaining uh, that gravity that the relationships are are what's really important and if you like fuck up on something or if you you know make a mistake with you know your product your course etc those people who are your friends who are invested in you, you know, they're, they're not just gonna blow you off or stop following you or, you know, insult you publicly. So I think it's, it really comes down to, yeah, that community aspect of building relationships, trust, respect, um, and that's what sustains you long-term. And I think just makes you feel healthier as a person too.
0: Absolutely. So let's um, have let's kind of finish up on this question. I, I don't want to keep you too long and we don't have audience here today for QA, so that's okay. But um, you brought up this idea, or at least um, made me think of this idea of audience first versus product first. That's something that's discussed a lot in like startup world, where people talk about building product forever and ever and ever and making it perfect. And then launching it and nobody's there. It's crickets because they never built an audience. They never even understood if there was a market for this product, right? And I think that can apply very easily to whether it's a pre recorded or a cohort based course. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfect example I just tried launching a cohort based course without a demand for it. And the result was I sold zero seats. Um, It was an experiment of sorts with this new company that's doing a Web3 enrollment into cohort based courses and stuff. So I was like, yeah, I'll be your first. I'll be the test dummy and I'll figure out like what's working, what's not. I worked with them like through every stage of like, hey, your your builder is broken or hey, this text block is like not (laughs) doesn't have any formatting and that (laughs) kind of stuff. And, um, you know, launched it. Even though I had been talking about Web3, even though I'd been talking about courses, even though I'd been talking about my book, um, there wasn't enough demand. And I have, again, 2,000 person on my email list, about almost 2,000 on Twitter, you know, 1,500, 1,600 on other social media platforms. That wasn't even enough to get one person to buy, which is kind of sad, but that's okay. Again, it was an experiment, not a failure. So how important in your mind is it to focus on audience first versus focusing on product first can or should you do them simultaneously? Like, what's your take on that part of this whole jam?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. And it's something that um, comes up and has been like a friendly joke with um, some of the other course coaches that I've worked with who are more focused, like specialists in marketing um, versus Mm -hmm. like someone like me. And my specialty is more pedagogy and operation side um so we always talk about like which more is important and some people are like marketing is more important and we're like and some people say like pedagogy but i think um coming into it like before i joined uh the first maven cohort i i would have said pedagogy like is the most important thing 100 percent focus on that um and then since like in the past eight months now i would say unquestionably like the two are equally important and again i disagree with people who say marketing is more important because to me like, like to your point too, like coming back to the startup principle is you have, the marketing is a matter of not just, you know, you have to make a living to support yourself. So you have to get people into the course to make a profit. But at the same time, in order to like make the system function, in order to give people the results they want, you have to get the right people into that course. Um, otherwise, you know, they won't get the results that, you know, you're looking to give people and the people that you're actually looking to help won't be in your course. So to me, that's like lose, lose. Um, And so that's why I say the marketing is definitely an equal, uh, super important point. But then the pedagogy on the other side of it, like some people are kind of like, oh, it's easier to throw that together. And fair enough, it takes less time. But for me, the the reason it takes less time is because marketing is about building trust and respect, like I said. So that's why it takes time is you need to do that over time. People aren't just going to be like, yeah, I automatically trust that person. I mean, it's great when that happens, but usually it's like a bit of a warm-up process. Whereas with the pedagogy, if they've signed up to your course, they obviously trust and respect that you actually know what you're teaching. So, to, so yes, you can put the pedagogy together faster than you can the marketing in terms of deploying it. Um, but I would say that they're equally important to think about both. Um, and this is something that I think the Maven Course Accelerator does exceptionally well. Is um, So Wes KO has this, um, this kind of, she calls it her spiky point of view, that you should start marketing before you build it. And now having like been through it and stuff, I'm like, I agree, like you should, you shouldn't build out your whole course if you haven't started marketing it, because to me, a huge part of it is again, that customer discovery aspect, um, from the startup world of you need to speak to people one-on-one. Like I know some people with big audiences can just do surveys and they're like, Hey, that's enough information. But I just think you're leaving so much information, uh, you know, out of, out of your periphery. If you don't speak to people one-on-one and get that qualitative data of what exactly are they looking for? Um, you know, what are like. Get the exact wording because, again, with surveys, there's only so much you'll get from them. And you don't pick up on the nuance of speaking to someone directly. So coming back to that startup analogy, I think you really need to do that customer discovery work. So I think you do that up front. Um, and then once you validate a demand for your course, then you start building it in full. Um, so that, so that's a huge part of it. And I would say, too, another another big tip that I think Maven does really well with their accelerator and something that, again, kind of hit me in the face of, like, <laughs> after doing all of All of these experiences with these cohort based courses, I realized how similar it is to startup founders building a startup is when I first joined the startup incubator and I was trying to learn about, um, you know, how to craft a good pitch, for example, because we're doing a workshop on that. I watched a bunch of pitches for um, a competition at Startup Fest. Um, I I don't know if you've heard of it, but the big event in Montreal. Yeah, okay, it's pretty big. (laughs) So I watched a bunch of pitches. And what was interesting is the number one thing I noticed, the pattern in all of these competitions was. The, the most critical feedback that the judges seemed to just repeat over and over again, no matter how amazing the pitch seemed was the differentiator wasn't clear enough. Like why you, like why your product, that was not clear enough. Like the product being great was, or service was great, but they're like, but what's your differentiator? And they just kept repeating that to like all these people. And I was like, Oh, it's true. Like, it's so easy to, to glaze over the differentiator or to not think it's that important. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's something I think comes back to to courses. And again, like I said, to to the point Wes teaches in the accelerator of like, you have to have a unique angle to your course, um, which is ultimately your differentiator. So I think, again, coming back to a startup pitch or anything, what is your, uh, that has to be the pitch for your course is What is your differentiator? And again, this is the word I said I like to talk about when it's uh, an entrepreneur creator making a course of their own. Like, what is it that you're accentuating of your own that's really unique? Um, and that's really going to stand out to make this like the only option that, uh, that people want to buy as opposed to any other, you know, alternative.
0: Wow. That's huge. Um, so, so good. And this idea of validating demand first, like that stuck me a little bit. Cause I didn't, <laughs> I didn't validate demand for a cohort based course. I launched it on a flyer and, and threw it out there. And I think that probably was felt there wasn't a lot of differentiation there, there was, you know, so I have, I'm the living example of all the things to not do. But, right. but what
1: I'm, You know, and like I said, I've learned a lot of these things from like making my mistakes of my own, you know? And like I said, even with uh, like picking up on that, with the startup pitches, again, it's not just like something that I would know myself if I did, if I were to make a pitch, I'd be, I'd be probably be the first one making that mistake. Uh, but it was mm-hmm. from watching a bunch of them back to back. That's when you start to notice the patterns and thinking like, wow, if all these brilliant people, are, uh, you know, are overlooking that, then it goes to show that like, this is a really common challenge that we don't think of. So I think this is something where, um, the Maven course accelerator, like I said, really stands out in the way that they teach people. Like if you don't have a differentiator, then, you know, your marketing is infinitely going to be more hard because, you know, why should people choose your course? And again, what I love about it is to me, it, it represents more than marketing, because if you're again, like whether I say it's like accentuating something specific about what you're teaching. Um, for me, it's not just about the marketing because your pedagogy is going to be built off that unique angle. So to me, this is where, again, I see they, they go hand in hand and that's like the kind of pinnacle of like where they start um, and then and then kind of build from there. So it's, uh, it's something very easy to overlook. And like I said, it's something that I've, I've learned. Uh, I've only learned in the past like eight months or so since I've been doing this, but once you recognize it, you're like, okay, this has to be a priority. And, and I think, yeah, easy. just validating it. And to your point, to cut you some flack of, even if you felt like you had kind of validated the concept, I think, like you said, the web three angle, like that's, that's something very new that even to someone like me, I would be like, I was kind of unclear about how it worked. Um, so in that case, I think you hadn't validated the web three aspect. That would be my, my perception anyway, Mm -hmm. if that makes you feel any
0: better (laughs) or worse. No, it's hundred percent true. It does make me feel better. And, you know, I think that we as creators can often be hard on ourselves when things don't oh, go yeah. perfectly, especially when we see the, the David Perel's and the Tiago Forte's and the, the ship 30 for 30 people that are killing it with online courses or these people with big followings that launch a course on Maven and make $250,000 in a month. And you're just like, holy cow. Wow. You know, we, we get excited and it motivates us because we're creative people that we get that little spark of like, I can do that. I want to do that. And then you start building And then you're ready to launch it and you're like, okay, but the other half is missing. Marketing is not one day. It's not a launch week. It's the whole year before and a year after of like constantly talking about this and promoting it and marketing and networking, meeting new people, building those relationships. And that's how like it steadily just starts to rise and compound over time if you keep at it. But I, the thing that I've made this mistake in the past, and I think too many creators continue to make it, is, well, you quickly spin up a product because that's what you're good at. You can make something really quickly. And then you launch it really quickly without giving people a lot of time to like have context or to understand what it is or if they want it or not or if it's for them. And then by the time they figure out, oh, that's actually interesting, you've already stopped talking about it and you moved on to the next thing because <laughs> it didn't work out. So um, strategically, the way I built Craftsman Creative was so that I can just keep talking about one thing for the next 20 years. I don't know. Like, this feels like a life work kind of thing. I love making movies, and I love doing TV stuff, and I love writing. But, like, the passion is about contributing to the growth of creators and helping them build businesses so that they can have the kind of life that I'm privileged to have, which is I can – travel and I can, I have a family and a house and I have enough money to live the kind of life that I want because I do creative work. And so I want everyone to have that because it means you can be an amazing creator and you don't have to stress about financial stress or the coworkers that you hate working with or the boss that is threatening to fire you as a joke every other week. Like I've been through all that and it sucks. So anyway, rant over, but the point being, um, That if you kind of follow, if not kind of, if you follow these principles of like marketing, relationship building, seeing marketing as this new thing and not just a one-off event, like that's the takeaway for me, at least from this conversation is that it's something you're going to be doing all the time. So figure out that messaging, figure out that differentiator, because then you can talk about it and it's not, it doesn't feel salesy or icky or anything like that. You're genuinely trying to help people with that messaging.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think, um, like you mentioned, someone like, again, David Perel, I know I keep coming back to this example, because Rite of Passage really yeah. is like this, I think, just is like the all-star example of you know what a cohort-based mm-hmm. course can be when done well. Um, but the thing is, like you said, I think people just think, like, he built this massive following, and now he has this huge course. It's like, he's a feedback magnet, even now, like, you know, they're three years into the course. And like I said, he's at a point where he could just delegate things like one-to-one interviews and stuff to his team. And half the time, it's I think, too, the the word interview can throw people off because it kind of feels like it has to be like a formal thing with like, you know, you're taking notes type thing, which um, like in my case, like just having like a a conversation with people. um, So it can just feel like an informal one to one of like, hey, Darren, how was your experience in the course? Like talk me through it. What were some good things? So it could just be like a conversation with a friend, you know, super informal. But I think a lot of people don't realize you have to do that. And again, this is why I wrote this thread the other day, because as soon as I realized like the business model canvas, what I learned. Um, Like how do you, how to build a a repeatable and scalable business model? Again, that was another huge thing I took from the the startup world. And I think what people don't realize is like, okay, yes, instructors like David Perel are feedback magnets where they're always getting more feedback directly from like real humans, um, as opposed to just surveys, um, which which is something you do as well, of course, but getting that feedback to iterate and make it better. Um, And then, like we said, using the, the language they use in describing their pain points, putting that into marketing, because this is another thing, and I know Dickie Bush shared something uh, really great, or Nicholas Cole, one of them from Ship30, shared this really great thing about how to make better landing pages. And they were saying most of us make the mistake of uh, just jumping into our solution, right, and describing what we're offering. But they're like, what you really need to do is like help people realize they're in the right place by articulating, making them feel seen and heard, and that starts with you know using their own language. And at the Startup Hub where I worked, we used to call this like put their words in your mouth, it sounds gross, but it's uh, like the idea of take, take their words and use that in your marketing. So don't describe like what you think their pain point is like actually use real language that they would use, how they would describe it. And that way, when they arrive there, they're like, okay, I'm in the right place. They understand what I'm going through. They understand what I need. And by the time they read down to your solution, they're thinking like, okay, I trust that this is like a viable solution for me. Um, So that's a huge part I would say is the feedback magnet. And then the other thing I would just say too, is Again, a lot of these people who have these massive followings, they're entrepreneurs who have been building for years. So I think people just think like, oh, they shot up to like this fame overnight. And it's like, well, no, they've put in tons of work, building trust, building relationships with people. And now, of course, people trust them and want to follow them and continue learning from them. Um, And the same way we said, like, you know, your marketing can be supercharged by people like friends of yours with bigger followings, retweeting or sharing things. Uh, the same goes for anytime you want to follow someone. I'm sure most of us, there's a reason there's a feature for it to see who do you know that's following that person? Because it's natural. We associate trust with, okay, well, I'm looking at this person, but like no one in it was following them. So like, are they are they legit? I don't know. Whereas if I look at someone who, let's say, is talking about course marketing, um, and I think about even the coaches I met, like through Maven, who are you know experts in marketing, if they're all following that person, I'm like, okay, I trust this person's legit in this field, so I'm going to follow them and take their advice too. Whereas if none of them were, I would question like, oh, well, are they like maybe legitimate? Maybe I'll ask my friends who are, you know, knowledgeable in that field if, if that's a good, um, a good thing. But again, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs and stuff who are launching courses, like they're familiar with the startup principles. They do things like customer discovery interviews and meetings with one-to-one with people. They, they understand the feedback cycle that's necessary in speaking with people. So I think they just naturally do it because that's how they operate. And I think a lot of creators, uh, again, like no one teaches people these things um, if you haven't been in that world. Like I said, I didn't learn any of this until I joined a startup incubator, which is crazy because they seem like such obvious things once you learn them. Um, But I think (laughs) you have to realize that too, is like people are just trained and they know how to operate in those things. And if you learn those things that you can do that too, but everything takes time and you have to appreciate that it's a long game.
0: Amazing. I'm so glad that's where we're ending because I think that's my biggest takeaway from my experience, but also this conversation. I feel like we could go on for hours yeah. and hours talking about this stuff because it's so much fun, but you have to think, expand your mindset around what marketing is, that it's a long-term thing. It's not an event. It's part of the process of being a, an owner of a creative business or any business. You need yeah. to be marketing consistently and constantly. And that's something that doesn't turn off. It's another part of your business that makes it all work so amazing amazing alexandra where can people find you online what are you working on that you want to tell people about let's uh, send people your way because after after listening to this they definitely should be following you online and checking out your stuff
1: oh thank you well if anyone wants to hop on my newsletter it's alexandraallen.substack um on twitter as well alexandra allen with an underscore on the end because uh, a lot of people apparently have my name uh, and again, Alexandra Allen. You, if you type in Montreal, I should come up on LinkedIn. Um, so, in terms of what I'm working on now, um, I'm mostly doing consulting for the summer. I, I've done a lot of uh, worked on a lot of different courses over the winter. Um, so, those uh, those of you who have not been to Canada know that we get very limited hot weather. So, I'm going to be doing more consulting, uh, writing. I'm working on a lot of um, course building course building materials so people can work more autonomously. Because I know a lot of people that I've been working with, specifically people with smaller audiences. Um, you know, don't necessarily have the budget to, to hire someone full-time to build their course and don't necessarily want to do an accelerator course. So I'm trying to create different resources they can use to work autonomously. And then I do consulting to kind of help them work through a four-week sprint. Um, so I have, uh, on my Twitter and LinkedIn bios, there's my link tree if you want to book consulting hours or check out uh, my page on Gumroad. Um, otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some, a few different sprints with some ed tech companies as well that I'll be sharing in due course, but Otherwise, yeah, just uh, feel free to connect, introduce yourself. Would love to uh, meet more people in this space.
0: Amazing. One of the things I think you are best at is that, you know, just in our conversations that we've had already in two weeks, you've already introduced me to like four other people that I should know or talk to. And I've <laughs> reached out and DM them, nice. them and like my network is expanded because I met you. So hopefully people can uh, go find you online and connect that way because it's it's good That's great to hear
1: because I know uh, I'm definitely an event organizer and actually when I worked at Ubisoft, I organized an annual conference uh, for um, our international uh, team. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I'm looking to do more community building initiatives and connect more people in this space because there's so many interesting people. And like I said, having people in different locations from different backgrounds, uh, it's it's really exciting. So, yeah, uh, definitely feel free to connect and introduce yourself.
0: So cool. All right. Well, thanks a ton. For those of you who are not yet on the Craftsman Creative newsletter, head over to CraftsmanCreative.co. Get that in your inbox. And thanks again, Alexandra. This was amazing.
1: Thank you, Darren. I really appreciate it. It was a good first podcast experience.
0: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Okay.